In the section read to us today, we see Jesus continuing to travel on his path to the cross. And as always, he's on a mission. At this time, he's going to confront various individuals who are blind, deaf and dumb. Jesus was never still. He had just left the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon where he had cast a demon out of a young girl in response to the faith of, his, of her mother. And then he went all the way down to Decapolis where in the vicinity of 130 kilometres. And how did he get there? Well, as far as we know, he walked. There's an old song that says, I walk today where Jesus walked in days of long ago. Remember it, Elizabeth? Yep, one thinks she probably will. So who's on for a 130k walk? Any starters? It's only as far as from here to Campbelltown. Just a bit of a stroll, really. There's nowhere that Jesus walked was just a random outing. There's always a reason for what he had to do. And in this particular time, it was to heal a man who was cut off from society because of his deafness and of his inability to speak. Jesus loved this man as he loved all the people he met. But others must have loved him too. They brought him to meet Jesus. And we don't exactly know why, but it occurred near Decapolis. And Decapolis was mentioned a few weeks ago because in chapter 5 we read about the madman from whom Jesus cast out a whole legion of demons. And when Jesus spoke to him afterwards, he said, you go back into Decapolis and tell the people the great things that God has done for you. Maybe that encouraged them to hope that this miracle man from Galilee could help their friend too. And perhaps that's an incentive for us to go and tell people how much the Lord has done for us. This is the verse that was read before and about the things that he did. And Mark was the only one to record this incident in which Jesus does something different to anything he has done before. He took the man aside from the crowd and put his fingers in his ears. And then he spit and touched his tongue. <laughs> Seems a strange thing to do. But I believe it was telling us that God deals with each of us individually and personally to address our particular needs and in a way we can understand. No matter who we are or what circumstances we face this, this, at this moment, God is aware of all that and will work with us in a way that meets our particular needs. Jesus couldn't communicate with this man as he would normally do the man was deaf and couldn't hear a word that Jesus said. So he put his fingers in his ear in order to let him feel and sense that Jesus was explaining, I am going to make you hear. Jesus was using sign language. And when he spit and touched his tongue, he's telling the man, I am going to make you speak. The message was communicated in a way that he could understand. Remember, this man couldn't hear. And Jesus, when he said, why did he look up to heaven? Well, the man couldn't hear. And Jesus was signing to him, I believe, where his help was going to come from. Psalm 121 says, I will lift up my eyes under the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Oh, what a difference it makes to be touched by Jesus. 
I love Gaither's song, shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and sin, shame. Then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And all oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know he touched me and made me whole. And I'm sure that guy was no longer the same. What the people had witnessed caused quite a stir, as you can imagine. And Jesus couldn't shut them up. The more he told them to be quiet and not tell anyone about it, the more they talked about it. They got really excited. See, Mark's gospel was written primarily for Gentile people. So unlike Matthew, he didn't use a lot of references to Old Testament writers. But any good Jewish person with the knowledge of the ancient scriptures could have recognized what Jesus did was the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame, the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. A fulfillment of ancient prophecies in this person, Jesus, showing who he was and where he'd come from. The crowds were excited and exclaimed, he has done everything well. And how true that was. Jesus always does things well. Nobody could find fault with him. Nobody spoke like he did. Nobody could do the miracles he did. There was no shoddy work in anything that Jesus did. And it was true of creation where God exclaimed, it is very good. And it's even more true of his work of redemption. For in Hebrews 11 and 12 from the message we read, as a priest, Christ made a single sacrifice for sins. And that was it. Then he sat down at the right hand, right beside God, and waited for his enemies to cave in. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people like us. A few weeks ago, David commented on the compassion Jesus showed. And that's evident again here. And Jesus himself says, I have compassion on these people. They've been, me three been with me three days, they're hungry, I can't send them away like this without any food. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and that's true. Jesus mentioned this to his disciples, but I don't like being hard on them. Sometimes I have to feel they were rather blind and dumb that they couldn't understand. They come to him and said, but where in this remote place is anyone going to get enough bread to feed them? Good gracious, just a little while ago they'd seen Jesus feed over 5,000 people with food from a little boy's lunch. It seems they just didn't really understand who Jesus was. Despite seeing the miraculous things he did, they failed to recognize the true identity of Jesus. And they failed to recognize the sufficiency of the Lord in every situation. Even though they were Jewish, it seemed they hadn't understood that Jesus would actually El Shaddai, the Jewish name for the Lord God Almighty, 
and he was also Jehovah Jireh, the Jewish expression for the Lord will provide. Of course, the disciples may not have been to the synagogue school to learn some of these things, but they had so much to learn. And Jesus was about to give them another lesson. You know the story as well as I did. And we've heard it read to us this morning how they found the seven loaves and a few small fish and brought them to Jesus. He broke them, gave them to the disciples to distribute. And the 4,000 people there were satisfied. And seven basketfuls of leftovers were there for them too. Ah, well, there are those highly educated critics today who will tell us this is really the same incident as the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew and Mark just got their figures a little wrong and got mixed up. But how wrong they were, the critics were. These were two separate but similar miracles. And there are a number of reasons to understand that they were different. <clears throat> Pardon me. And I'm only going to mention two today. Firstly, when talking to the disciples later in the boat, Jesus identified them as being separate occasions. And I'll take his word for it over anyone else. And read to us how he questioned them. How many baskets at that time? Twelve. How many baskets at this time? Seven. The disciples and Jesus knew and recognised these were two separate occasions. But secondly, I think the two miracles were for a different purpose. Feeding the 5,000 took place in Jewish territory. So I, so I presume that most of the people there were Jewish. In John 6... We read of a discussion that Jesus had with those people the day after feeding the 5,000. Still excited about the great feed of bread they'd unexpectedly and miraculously received yesterday, the people recalled to Jesus that years ago our ancestors in the wilderness got bread from heaven. Moses sent them down bread from heaven. And Jesus corrected them and he exclaimed it wasn't Moses who sent them the bread. It was gone. Then as he turned their mind from the physical to the spiritual, he went on to say, For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Oh, they were excited about, Oh, give, give us this sort of bread. And he clarified it to say, I am the bread of life. Then he told them clearly in verse 38 of the same chapter, I came down from heaven. And where did he come to? Bethlehem. And the name literally means house of bread. He was the bread of God. He was teaching them in the feeding of the 5,000 that he was the bread of God sent down from heaven to give life to all of the Jewish people. Well, at least all to who would receive him. But the feeding of the 4,000, however, took place in Gentile territory. And I believe that he was teaching the Gentile people and particularly the disciples that he was the bread of God sent down from heaven to give life to all of the Gentile people as well as the Jews. And that was a, well, an eye-opening statement to the disciples. In fact, he was teaching them to bring the life-giving bread from heaven to all people everywhere and hopefully all of us here have received that life-giving bread for ourselves. Something to note is that Jesus didn't suddenly say the word and huge piles of bread and fish appeared. No, they gave it to Jesus and he broke piece by piece, creating more as he went along 
passed it out to the disciples who then distributed it amongst the crowd. And similarly, God doesn't suddenly zap into our minds and hearts everything we need to know about him and how to live and how we should carry out our lives. We need to keep coming back to him every day as the disciples did and learn more about him and spend time talking to him in prayer and seek his help regarding our individual needs. When we do so, it's then our responsibility, as it was for the disciples then, to take what we have learned or received from Jesus and pass it out to those around about us who have no knowledge of what Jesus can do in their lives. As I said before, at that time the disciples failed to recognise the true identity of Jesus and they failed to recognise the sufficiency of the Lord to supply in every situation. So what about you? Do you fully understand <clears throat> that the one to whom you pray is the creator of the universe with unlimited power and resources? And do you believe he can provide for your needs today? In this affluent country of ours, we can tend to believe that woolies and coals supply our daily needs and so we don't necessarily have to ask the Lord to supply. We could learn a lot from George Mueller, who in the 1800s was moved by God to care for the many orphans in the area. And gradually he built five huge orphanages, costing over 100,000 pounds, which is the equivalent today of $22 million. And over the years, he housed, fed, clothed, and educated over 10,000 orphans and all without going into debt or seeking financial support from anyone but by living a life of faith and prayer dependent upon God. There's a well-documented story about how he got all the kids to sit down for breakfast on one time stood up to pray and thank the Lord for what we're about to receive, knowing full well that there was absolutely no food in the house whatsoever. None. But as he concluded his prayer, there was a, a knock at the door and there was the local baker who bought a full cartload of bread, freshly baked, to deliver to, free of charge to the orphanages. And when he left, a milkman walked in because his cart had broken down just outside the orphanage. And rather than let the milk go off, he brought it in. Just what the people wanted. If ever there was a man that understood that God was able to supply his daily needs, it was this man whose total reliance was on God alone. Perhaps you're not so worried about your physical needs, but what about your emotional and spiritual needs? You could be going through a difficult time in life in the moment and you don't know how you're going to be able to cope. And Geordie used that in his introduction last week about the various crises that could come in the lives of people who were in the church at that time. I'll remind you of 1 Peter 5 and 7 that says, Give all your cares and worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. <coughs> yeah, right, you say. That's easy to say, but it's a bit harder to do. It is easy to say, and it is a bit harder to do. 
But I have something I have found to be true is these past two and a half years have been the most stressful time in all of my life. Being accused of something I didn't do, being told I needed legal representation, and facing the fact of my reputation going downhill while legal bills kept spiralling upwards. It's not an attitude that gives you a guaranteed good night's sleep. And there were many times when I'd be tossing and turning and thinking over things, and I would use and quote that very verse and say, God, this problem is too big for me. I can't handle it. You take it from me. I'm giving it to you to work out in your good time. And he did. And I found I could roll over and go to sleep. Finding peace in the middle of a storm, as it were, in the manner Paul outlined in Philippians, where he said, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I found that to be true. And I will be eternally grateful for the people in my home group, for the love, the support and prayers they gave to me through that period. And if you are not in part of, as part of a home group, could I suggest later you have a talk to Andy up there and there may be a home group where you could go and find that support and care too. <clears throat> Can you accept that Jesus has sufficient resources to meet your need? Annie Johnson Flint put it this way, when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So back to the story. We read in verse 10, after Jesus had sent them away, he got in the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. And arriving there, Jesus is confronted with another group of blind people. This time, it was the Pharisees. They could actually see, but they had a willful blindness. You've heard the phrase, there are none so blind as those who will not see. Theirs was a blindness that came from the hardness of their hearts. They couldn't deny that the signs that they'd seen from Jesus, but they did. You might remember back in um, chapter 3, I think it was, they saw there was something special about their man, and yet they attributed the works that he did to the power of the devil, not to the power of God. No wonder Jesus was frustrated with them from time to time. And if you read on, he sighed deeply. A sign. He healed the sick, made blind people see, lame people walk, fed thousands with a child's lunch, even raised the dead. What more sign could they possibly want? <clears throat> Since Mark was writing to Gentiles, 
He didn't include the Lord's words as we find in the other gospel records of this event. Pardon me for a moment. <clears throat> there Jesus said that the only sign that would be given to this generation would be the greatest sign of all, the sign of the prophet Jonah. In other words, he's referring to the time when he, like Jonah, would go down into death, <clears throat> would be raised from the dead in the power of resurrection, proving who he was and who he claimed to be. And it wasn't going to be very long before these ultra-religious Pharisees would witness that taking place. Yet because they'd hardened their hearts so much, it wouldn't have made any difference. So then we read, then he left them got back in the boat, turned his back on them and sailed across the Sea of Galilee to reach Bethsaida. It's a sad bit. It could be possible that someone here continues to reject the claims of Jesus and hardens their hearts. They could find Jesus eventually turns and goes away and they've missed their opportunity. On the boat, Jesus tries once more to get a message to these slow to understand disciples. He warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees. Seems a strange thing to be talking about, doesn't it? They'd forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And as they talk together, it's, be it's because we didn't bring bread that he's taking this. But Jesus, aware of their discussion, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? In the Old Testament, we find that yeast was called leaven. And at particular times, the Israeli people were banned from using leaven or yeast, or not even to have it in their homes because yeast was a picture of sin, a picture of evil and wickedness, because like yeast, though it is small and hidden, it spreads very swiftly and soon affects the whole. Yeast is produced, is used to produce fermentation in dough. It's the main ingredient that causes bread to rise in preparation for baking. And just as about a small amount of yeast makes the whole loaf of bread rise, Jesus was warning that a little bit of the Pharisees' hypocrisy, legalistic thinking and teaching would quickly spread, infiltrating the hearts and minds of all the people they come in contact with. And Jesus, after his recent um, interaction with the Pharisees, was warning them about this. Jesus must have become frustrated with the disciples once more. He's speaking to them about the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, and they think he's talking about the bread they forgot to bring. He's on a completely different level. They're not tuned into the Lord and not getting the message. They're thinking about food for their body, and he's wanting to feed their souls. Jesus had recently fed over 10,000 people, including women and children, and the disciples are still worried about they're going to get their, where they're going to get their lunch. What blindness it was. But finally in Mark... We read there's a recorded miracle, it's not found anywhere else in the Bible, where he takes this blind man and makes him see. This is another time where Jesus uses unusual methods to achieve his end. 
First, he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. Now, why would he do that? I believe it was because Bethsaida had seen many, many miracles and ignored them. And their hearts were too hard to accept who Jesus was. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus condemned them. He said, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. In other words, Bethsaida, you've had your chance and you blew it. And I'm not going to do any more miracles in your town to try and convince you. In fact, Jesus ultimately tells this man, don't even go back into the village at all. What a sad thing it would be to ignore God's warnings and not respond to his grace. Again, this healing is unique and it was the only healing in the whole of the Old Testament, in the New Testament that I know of, that took place in stages. First, the blind man can see shapes. Then he could see clearly. You wonder why Jesus would do that. It's certainly not that he couldn't summon up enough strength and enough divine power to do the miracle in one fell swoop at all. No. I believe what Jesus is doing here is giving another lesson to those slow-minded disciples that their knowledge of him, his identity and his sufficiency was only partial at that time. They weren't getting it yet. The disciples were only dimly grasping the true purpose of Christ's mission. And I know I wouldn't have been any brighter than they were. No way in the world. They didn't understand when he later talked to them about going to the cross, dying, and then being raised from the dead three days later. But that was changing as their understanding of him and their time with him and listening to the lessons that Jesus was giving them changed their attitude. And most of them became so committed to them, to him, that they died horrible deaths because they fearlessly declared who he was to all they came in contact with. In some ways, all of us are like that. None of us have a complete knowledge of what the Lord is doing in our lives, particularly if it's in a time of crisis. Whatever circumstances you're going through, no one completely understands and no one can answer all your questions. There is a sense in which this healing could point to the fact of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. We're not going to find the answers to all our questions until that day when we see the Lord. And even then we might know all the answers. However, in Philippians 1, Paul reassures us that if the Lord has started a work in us, though it might be only partial at the moment, he, Paul, was confident of one thing. He says, I am certain that God who began a good work within you will continue his work 
until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Well, once again we walked a little way with Jesus along his path to the cross. And today we've met with people who are blind, deaf and dumb. So let me ask questions of us all. How's our vision this morning? Can we see clearly or are we still partially blind in some areas? Do we really understand who Jesus is and that he could supply all our different needs today? Have we this week turned our eyes upon Jesus to the extent that the things of earth have grown strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? Do we really know Jesus? or just know about him. I saw it on email the other day, Jeremiah has launched, David Jeremiah has launched a new teaching series called The Jesus You May Not Know. He said, I grew up as a preacher's kid and began a relationship with Christ at a young age. I knew a lot about Jesus, but it wasn't until I attended seminary and began to pastor that I realized how much about Jesus I did not know. So I set out to know him more thoroughly, and it changed me. Wasn't that Paul's desire, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection? So how's our vision this morning? And how's our hearing this morning? Are we listening to hear what he has to say to us, either in our hearts or through his word? Are we ready to act on what we hear? Are we like Samuel, the little boy of old, who wanted to hear the voice of God and said, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And are we able to speak this morning? I'm sure we'll have no difficulty talking when we get out in the morning tea area. But are we taking every opportunity to tell others about Jesus? Psalm 69 and 30 says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. And it's as we share with others what Jesus has done with this, we're magnifying the name of our great God. So today, let's not be blind, deaf or dumb in any way. Today, instead of finishing with a prayer, as I would usually do, I want to finish with a song. And Elizabeth is just moving to the piano for us. And I would like all of us to sing it together not as just a song, but as a prayer. We don't sing it very often these days. It's an old hymn written by Clara Scott. Perhaps she's an antecedent of Paul and Anne Marie, who knows? And that was in 1895 that she wrote this. And I know many people prefer newer songs these days, but the words of this one sum up what we've been talking about here so well. It also had old-fashioned language when I've taken the liberty of modernising the these and thous. And I'm sure the author won't mind as she died in a tragic accident just two years after she wrote the song. And I think she'd be delighted that what, to think that what she wrote is still being sung 125 years later. The words follow beautifully from what we've been thinking about this morning. But please, please, don't just sing the words. Sing it as a prayer to God. 